Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. There are two things that people say you shouldn't talk about if you're in a certain settings, and those two things are religion and politics. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, is religion and politics. It's interesting how God involves himself in all the areas of our life. Remember, we are reading the epistle to the Romans. We've talked about what this epistle entails as Paul was in Corinth writing to the church that was in Rome, dealing with the struggles and the battles that were taking place at the church with the Jewish Christians coming from a place of their tradition, dealing with the Gentile Christians that did not have those same foundational beliefs and the struggles and battles they had with one another here in the city of Rome. And Paul is dealing with those things, and so we need to keep that perspective as we start reading about how we are to deal with government. And we also need to keep in mind what government is Paul talking about? Because our tendency is to take our world and fit it into what we're reading. And so when we start reading the government, we start thinking the United States. But what Paul is talking about is Rome. He's talking about the government of Rome. Was Rome a Christian government? No. Rome was very pagan. Rome was lewd. Rome had all kinds of corruption involved with it. Rome, in not too short of a time after this, would start persecuting the church in a huge, huge way. In fact, as we start thinking about this, turn to Acts 18. I want to read something just as we go into this. Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 1. Just verses 1 and 2. When Paul is in Corinth, where he would be writing this epistle, he says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila and a, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that would be the Caesar at the time, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. So to get just this little glimpse, Claudius the Caesar at that time ordered all the Jews out of Rome. We don't know why. But something had happened where he said, I want them out. There was some kind of disturbance, some kind of rebellion, some kind of issue taking place where he said, I want all the Jews out of Rome. Maybe it was purely for, you know, ethnic reasons, and he just was prejudiced. Maybe it was for political reasons. Maybe it was for the uh, uproar that they were causing, stirring up riots or uh, just talk. We don't know. But about five years prior to what Paul is writing here, Claudius ordered all the Jews out of Rome. Now, five years later, we say approximately 55 AD when Romans was being written, Paul is dealing now with the Roman government. And so in chapter 13, 
verse 1, Paul says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. As Paul makes this blanket statement that should take our breath away and make us question a lot of things, we need to put it in the context of what he has just said, and we will also put it in context of what he is going to say immediately after that we'll touch on tonight. Chapter 12, he talked about God's mercy. In verse 1, he says he urged us by the mercies of God or in view of God's mercy. In verse 9, he says, let our love be genuine. In verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection that we are to outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 13, he says, we're contribute to the needs of the saints and to show hospitality. Verse 14, to bless those who persecute us, to bless them and not curse them. In verse 17, not to repay evil for evil. In verse 19, to Never avenge ourselves, but to trust God. Verse 20 says, if our enemy is hungry, we're to feed them. Verse 21, he says, we're not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And so the whole context of chapter 12 has been God's mercy, God's love. And then he jumps right into this dealing in the political realm. And so we need to remember what God is... What Paul is trying to do and what God is trying to do is to demonstrate his love to the world around us. And that includes the government we find ourselves in. When you start talking politics, people get heated. And it doesn't matter if they're Republican or they're Democrat. You press the right buttons and they'll get going. I used to listen to a lot of talk radio especially when I was doing sales in uh, the lumber industry. And I'd listen to all these talk radio show hosts and I'd get all the political spins on one thing. And boy, my mind, by the time I get home, I was, I was upset, you know, I was fired up. You know, I can't believe what they're doing in Washington. Oh my gosh, the injustice. And everything I, I looked at was filtered through this lens that I'd been hearing all day long. Now, there's nothing wrong with listening to those things. It's good information and it's good to get insight. But remember this, our identity is not with a political party, it is with Jesus Christ. And we should be willing to put the political party aside for the sake of the gospel. 
It doesn't mean you have to change your core beliefs or your convictions. He's not asking you to stop believing a certain way or believe these things about the government. He never says that. But he says, more important than your political views is who you belong to. And instead of winning an argument politically, you need to win a person spiritually. And sometimes that political battlefield can be an obstacle and can cause problems. It can be a roadblock. I know with some of my family who are more of the liberal bent, it's a door that gets shut if you start talking politics. It'll just close the door for the opportunity to bring the gospel. You almost want to think when Paul says, to the Jew, I became a Jew, to the Gentile, I became a Gentile, you can almost say, to the Republican, I became a Republican, to the Democrat, I became a Democrat. And what he's trying to do is, where can you find ground that you can talk and work and minister? Because there is ground. There is a place that God will help you to find and meet. If you are a rebel, if you are an anarchist, if you are there to stir up issues, you're going to bring a bad name to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so remember, we come into this with the attitude of mercy, with the attitude of love. If your enemy curses you, don't curse them back, but bless them. If they're hungry, feed them. Bring that into your mindset when you start dealing with this political realm. And then he says, you must submit to the governing authorities because they're ordained by God. Now, let's look at that for a second, because when you think of the governing authorities, probably like me, you have a, a little view of history. Some of you, your view is better than mine, but... In the things that I know of history, I can think of some governments that just do not seem very God-ordained. Nazi Germany. Is that truly God-ordained? Are you telling me that God established someone like Adolf Hitler? How can that be? I'm not going to attempt to answer all these questions. But let me throw some things out to you. If it was not for Nazi Germany and World War II and then the displacement of the Jews and then the reestablishment of the Jews, there probably would not have led to the nation of Israel being established. Possibility. How and what works, I don't know. I don't know how all these things come into play where God establishes a nation and equips them the way he does. But God is at work through all the nations, through all the things that are being established. And so when someone like a Idi Amin or an Adolf Hitler or a Saddam Hussein or a Stalin, these people who are just incredibly evil, who showed incredible violence to people, and you would say, how can God establish someone like that. It's not saying that God is for that person and what they stand for, but God is working in all of humanity to accomplish his goals and his purposes. Now, as he does those things, 
Remember, he's talking here specifically about some things that they're dealing with. We saw a reference to that in chapter 18 of Acts. We see a little bit more reference to that as he's talking about these things. But he says that we need to submit to these people because they are there not for our harm, but for our good. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you for he is God's servant to do you good. The idea here is that the society is there for man's benefit. Now, you might think these gov governments that I've mentioned, there's nothing good about these governments, and there indeed is a lot bad, but there still is something good about government, even some of the worst governments, compared to anarchy. Compared to no government at all, you would be thankful for even a bad government. Because if everyone is there for themselves, you're in trouble every which way you look. Your neighbor, people down the street, you can't go somewhere without worrying about what is going to happen. Even in bad governments, there's a little bit of order. Doesn't mean that the overall cause or goal and direction of that government is good, but there is structure and there is order that benefits a society. And in Rome, that was the case. Even though they were perverted, even though they were very oppressive, there was good that was there compared to no government at all. And he's telling them that there is a portion of there that is there for your good. And if you follow in line, if you don't make waves, you're going to benefit from it. If you do make waves, then you need to worry about it. And, and we can apply that in our own time as well, very easily. The police. It doesn't matter how corrupt you think the police department is. They're not as bad as Rome was, guaranteed. And even today, I used to tell this to my kids. The kids used to always say, oh, the cops are in for, you know, the cops have this in for me. And this. It's like, they don't have it in for me. Why do they have it in for you? I drive down the same streets that you do. I just don't have my truck lifted seven inches with mufflers that are loud and go peeling out. Maybe that's a reason that they're attentive to you. Maybe there's something you're doing that's causing that thing. But if you do what society keeps in line, follow the laws, you're not going to get in trouble for the most part. For the most part. There's always circumstances where you know, there's a rogue cop or whatever. But for the most part, if you obey the law, it's there for your good. And he wears the gun or bears the sword for a reason. He has to implement justice. I guarantee you, you're glad the policeman has a gun when there's a situation involving someone who's violent and trying to kill people. You know, what happened... In Texas, with the military, the police actually went in there to stop the situation, even though it was a military base. Columbine. There, there's events where tragic things happen, and thank God there's police. Thank God there's people who bear a weapon who can go in there and stop those things. And so there is the good that is there for the society. Even though the government itself might have issues and problems, the fact that there is a government there is a benefit. And Paul is acknowledging that benefit and he's wanting to recognize those things. And he tells us that we're to submit to the civil authority for a few reasons. 
He says, because it's instituted by God. He says, two, that it's good for you. Three, it says, you're punished if you don't, which is bad. And three, because of consciousness sake, that you don't condemn or aren't condemned, but you do what is right in your own conscience. You know, the softest pillow is a good conscience, they said. If you go to bed with the conscience, I didn't do anything wrong, you can sleep well. If you go to bed thinking I, you know, just robbed the liquor store, then you don't sleep well. Why? Because someone's after me. You have that kind of conscience. Oh, I, I broke the law. And, and, you know, those little things add up. Those little things that we do. I'm just thinking back on, on things that have taken place in my own life. Worry that I had that someone was going to find out. Guilty conscience. Well, you break the law, you have a guilty conscience. You do what's right, you don't. And so he's trying to get them to understand that this is the way it is, that you need to do this because God instituted it, it's good for you, you're going to be punished if you don't, and for your own conscience sake, that you would establish these things. And then he goes a little bit further. In verse 6 he says, This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And I think verse 6 gives us a key to why Paul is writing these things. I think taxes were an issue. We know a little bit of this from Jesus' dealing in Matthew 22. Actually, in all three Gospels, the uh, situation with paying taxes shows up where they ask Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes? And Jesus says, give me a coin. They give him a coin and he says, whose inscription is on this coin? They say, Caesar's or Caesar, you know, bad Caesar. And Jesus says, well, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's. This coin bears the image of Caesar, you bear the image of God. Give the money to the government that is there, you give your life to God. And so Jesus is telling them, give the taxes. He had them fish, they collected the coin in the fish's mouth. That's a cool way to do it if you can, to pay taxes. If I knew where to fish more, I would do that. He got the taxes, paid what was necessary. Jesus paid taxes. And so Paul is telling them, you need to pay these taxes. You need to render these taxes. Now, you're telling me that the IRS is an institution of God? How can that be? That just strikes me in the wrongest of ways. You know, that, that should not be the case. I mean, but he's saying that this government is there. You need to do that part. Now, I believe there's a few reasons why. One, for the benefit of the society, but a two is for the benefit of the gospel. Because when you start saying, I'm not going to pay this, I'm not going to do this, and you start being this anarchist, people start looking at you and say, yeah, this guy's a troublemaker. And it doesn't matter what side of the political fence they're on. They usually causes problems. And so now they have reason to kick you out of their city because you're stirring up an uproar. Those kinds of things. And perhaps that was one of the reasons. These people were opposing the paying of taxes and causing an uproar. And they said, get him out of the city. 
and they weren't an example. How can you be kicked out of something and be a good example to others around? You can't. And so Paul is trying to establish this idea of you need to be a good example, not only in paying taxes and revenues. And this is kind of like we have our income taxes that we pay, and then we also have sales taxes that we pay. Similar thing. They had their taxes, they had their revenues. They got them as much as they could, just as our government does with us. You know, they had to pay those taxes, they had to pay the revenues. But he goes on and he says, oh, reverence or revenue and respect to respect and honor to honor. You're also to respect the people that are above you. You're to show them honor. Now, if they had to show Caesar honor and respect, do you think that applies to President Obama as well? Honor and respect. Honor for his position, respect for the position that he's in. Doesn't mean you agree with him. Doesn't mean you don't voice your disagreements, but you need to show respect and honor. Many people feel it necessary to send out emails about the president, talking about all the wrong that he's done and all the evil that he's done. And this crosses, many of them do, I feel, crosses the line of showing respect and honor and causes problems, especially if that email goes to someone who's on the other political side of the fence. If I sent uh, some of these emails that I've read to friends who are Democrats, it would shut the door for me being able to open the gospel to them because, oh my gosh, what are you saying? How can you say that about our president? I voted for this man, you know, and they, they still like him, you know. We just need to show respect and honor. We, we want to be able to proclaim the truth, but it always is done in love. And when it stops being respectful and honorable to the position, we need to check our hearts and saying, why is this so important? How is this going to advance the kingdom of God? Because that's the kingdom we all belong to, really. The United States, as much as I love this country, as much as I believe it is a beacon of light and hope to this world, it is not the kingdom I belong to. It's the kingdom I live in. I will respect it. I will honor it. I love this country. We just celebrated Veterans Day, remembering those veterans. And watching some of the programs on TV, you're so moved, and the stories that I read. I love this country, and the things that people have given so that we can enjoy the freedoms that we have. I am so grateful, so thankful. And the things that I see happening in this country that I don't like, that are destroying and eroding the, the foundations of our freedom, that it troubles and it hurts me, I can share those things, but not at the cost of stopping or tainting the opportunity for the kingdom of God to be preached. Is that clear? Do you guys understand what I'm saying? There's something more important than whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, and that's whether you're a Christian if you're a follower of Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you love your enemies. You feed those who are being mean to you. You bless and not curse. You show honor, you show respect. That's even for your enemies. And our government 
as bad as it is, they're not our enemy. And so we need to maintain these things and we need to show this respect and we need to show these things. Now, I, we need to ask ourselves some questions here because it, it's necessary. What about the times in the Bible, let alone our country and the American Revolution, let alone you know all the other things we can think of historically? What about in the Bible where they rebelled against the governing authorities? Because it happened. Daniel. Happened in Daniel chapter 6, verse 6 through 10. I'll read it. It says, So the administrators and the, the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, perfect sheriffs, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now listen to this. Okay, we know this story about Daniel and the lions, but listen to what Daniel does after he finds out. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. He didn't go into the basement. He could have shut the windows. He could have stayed downstairs. But Daniel went upstairs with the windows open, just like he'd always done, and prayed to his God as before. Talk about blatant. He's defying the decree. It's an obvious time where he's making a, a public act of putting God before the king's decree. Exodus chapter 1, when the Hebrew women, the midwives, took the, the children and hid them and, and said, oh, we don't know what happened. You know, the women, they're too quick. They give birth and we don't know where they go. They lied. They defied the authority of Pharaoh, not killing the male children. Esther Chapter 4, 16, did this just for you ladies to remember the study you went through. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, nights, for three days, night or day. <clears throat> and <clears throat> I and my maids will fast as you do. <clears throat> Excuse me. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so we see that Esther, even though it was against the law, broke the law to take this presentation to the king. Rahab, the harlot, and Joshua was told, bring them here. She didn't. And so there are obvious instances where people go against the government, where there is civil disobedience. But there's some things that we need to notice about these things. First of all, Notice that they are for the benefit of others, and it's not just self-gratifying. In other words, Daniel didn't do this just because it was for himself. It was for his people and for his God. The Hebrew midwives did this for all the children that were there. Esther did it for the nation of Israel. Rahab did it for the nation of Israel. We see in Acts chapter 5 where Peter stands before the council and he says, 
it is better for us to obey men than obey God. And there is always that opportunity where we have to obey men rather than God. But what is it for? I mean, the grievances or the actions sanctioned by the law, how atrocious are they? These are pretty serious events. In other words, you know, are they asking you something small? Is it a traffic pattern that you think stupid? You know, or is it sanctioning killing? You know, well, I don't like that jaywalking law, so I'm going to go in rebellion. You know, is it something silly or is it something serious? The extent of the unjust and its effect, is it just affected here or there in small things or is it affecting the whole population? All these situations affected everybody. Does the law have an incidental inconsistency or is it putting a whole group of people into bondage because of their ethnic origin, like the Jews, or their religious beliefs, which might be the same which was with Daniel. The potential of civic, civil disobedience for clear and effective witness to the truth. This is the question of strategy, and, and there will certainly be room for differing judgments about whether you know, certain things should you know, be acts of civil disobedience or not, but Will it be clear and effective, the statements of what is just? In other words, I'm going to make a stand. Is it going to be clear after I make the stand that it was for a good reason? That it stood for something worth standing for? Like Wilbur, um, what's his, William Wilberforce stood against slavery. A Christian, his Christian conviction says, I think this is wrong. I want an abolition of slavery. And he was very adamant about this. Well, looking back, you can look back and say, man, I, I like what this guy stood for. He made a stand that you can consider noble. Then you have people like uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Nazi Germany, who made a plot to kill Hitler. You can look back and say, you know what? Hitler deserved to die and the things that were done the position that he stood for was good he probably should have denounced his citizenship to Germany might have made things clear but you can stand back and look back and say you know what what he stood for was a good thing it wasn't just something that was selfish Do you see what I'm saying that there are reasons for civil disobedience and some laws we just have to understand that there is a law above the law, the law that comes from God. And there are things that determine it's not a matter of situational ethics. It's a matter of the ethics that God has given us that supersede the ethics that we see. You see, it's okay to jaywalk if you're going to stop someone from raping someone. Why? Because what they're doing is wrong. It's okay to speed on the freeway if you're trying to save your wife's life because, you know, she's been injured. Why? Because one is of more importance than the other. So there are reasons for disobedience, but those reasons are God-motivated and not just selfishly motivated. And so, you know, this has, this chapter made me ask so many questions and try and answer them, and I'm trying to do that as best I can, and I still feel it's insufficient. But I, I want you to see that there are 
instances in scripture and instances that we know of where civil disobedience takes place and I don't think God says, oh no, you've done the wrong thing. Again, there is a motive that Paul is trying to establish and there needs to be a motive with us as Christians and that is to push forward this gospel message. It is to hold true the things that God establishes. You know, I, I think there is reason to oppose abortion. I think there is a good reason to do it, but I think there is a good way to do it as well. I, I think there are bad ways to do good things, if that makes sense, where you end up making the issue not representing the heart of God as you're trying to push forward with your agenda or what you people will see as your agenda. And so we need to be careful in those things, that we do things in a way that is going to be honorable. So... If the time comes and the civil disobedience is to carry it around, what should it look like? Well, it, it needs to be clear that we realize that it honors God, bottom line. Well, what does that mean? Well, the things that God has declared his heart in Scripture, it needs to honor those things. And so we need to try and make that the essence of what it is we are standing for if we are going to pursue disobedience. Okay, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever, whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And here we see that the idea of government is sandwiched in between chapter 12, which is God's mercy and love, and here he brings it back to that love and mercy. Now, owe no man, as some translations say, anything, or let no debt remain outstanding, whatever translation. We, we want to look at this in the context that it's being written, because a lot of people say, well, owe no man anything, that means there's not supposed to be any debt ever. So whether you borrow a dollar to get a Coke or you know, 500000 to get a house, um, you're not supposed to owe any man anything. I don't think that's the context. I think the context is dealing with taxes and the government and what you're owing them and paying what you owe. I believe that's the context. And there's a couple of reasons why I, I believe that. One is Jesus gives a parable in Matthew 25 where he talks about the servants and they're given talents and they go and they take that money and they invest it in certain things and one just buries it. And the one who buries the talent, the master comes and he says, what have you done? You should have at least taken it and put it in the bank where it would have gained interest. The idea of going to a bank and gaining interest is the idea of loaning. That's the reason the banks charge interest is because people take out loans. And so I don't see Jesus condemning that. He kind of alludes to that. And so if they should have put that in the bank, well, then maybe interest is okay. Maybe it's okay to take out a loan. And I, I don't see that this scripture is talking against that. Now, we do need to be good stewards of our money. I think a lot of us need plastic surgery, you know, where we cut up the credit cards and don't use them as you know much as we do. 
But I don't think this is saying that you should not borrow money or that that's wrong. And then he says, what we are to owe one another or the debt we are to continue is to love one another. And again, if you owe someone something, how is it loving not to pay them what you owe them? It just, it's not a good example of love. And so we are to show and, and not owe them anything except to love them. And by loving them, we need to pay the debt that we do owe. It's responsibility. Once again, this is a practical image of what it is to, to be able to truly minister to someone. What a bad witness and testimony it is, people who say they are following Jesus but are ripping people off. It's not a good example. And maybe you've seen this. I know I have over the years where people are, are really bold in their testimony and bold in their faith, but they bounce checks all the time. They're in debt all the time. They come in late to work, and they're just a bad example of what it is to Christians. They look at that person, they say, that's a Christian? Guy owes me 300 bucks. And he comes in and he starts witnessing to me, telling me I'm going to go to hell. You know, just give me my money. <laughs> you know, right now, I, I don't care if I go to hell. You know, just give me my 300 bucks. And you see the idea of that sharing with them has been lost because of what they see in you. And so we need to be careful that we don't do that. And then he goes on and he tells us that the law is summed up in this, that you love. If you love, you're going to do what is right. You're going to not murder. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to do the things that harm someone. You will be an example to them, which is, I think, Paul's point and foundation. You guys, you need to care more about the people you're trying to reach than your own satisfaction than your own needs. And so he tells them these things that it's summed up in love. And we need to recognize that. Verse 11, he says, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. He brings this to a conclusion, understanding that the Lord's coming soon. The night is far spent, but the day is coming. In other words, remember the kingdom you belong to. Remember that it's not Rome, but it's heaven. Remember that it's not Caesar, but it's Jesus. That's your Lord. That's who we serve. Keep that in perspective and understand these things so that you can live the right way. I love verse 13. Let us behave decently. You would think that would be automatically known, but he has to tell us. He has to tell them. We have to be told, behave decently. 
And he gives them extremes. I mean, he goes all the way from orgies to jealousy. Okay? He, he's covering the whole gamut. You guys, live decently. Live in a way, and he puts it to this, clothe yourselves with Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means when people see you, they should see Jesus. If you're clothed with him, if you are a part of his kingdom, you are identifying with him, that means you love just like he loved. That means you behave decently as he conducted himself. And that's what we need to do is put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't think about how to gratify our flesh. Because that's really the battle. See, the reason we cheat on taxes is because we want more money. Why do we want more money? Because I want to get more stuff. Because I want to use it for me. I want to gratify the flesh. And once again, we see the contrast between the spirit and the flesh. This battle that's always taking place. And if we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will not gratify the flesh. We will not be consumed with what we want to satisfy. Just the temporary. We need to be mindful of the eternal. And so in this idea of dealing with government, with authority over us, we need to realize there is true authority over us, and that is God himself. He wants us to conduct ourselves decently. He wants us to love. He wants love to be our motivation for everything that we do, even writing the check to the IRS. I know that's going to be a tough one. But God wants us to do everything with a motivation of love. We are to be thankful. And you see, if we have this attitude, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, they won't be able to talk against you because you are conducting yourself honorably. You're showing respect and you're loving others and not just there for yourself. And so that's what we want to take place within ourselves and the government that we live in, and Paul was dealing with a government that was much, much more corrupt than the one we are dealing with, that was more blatant in its opposition to Christianity. Again, in not too far from when he's writing this, the persecution of the church was going to be rampant. It was going to be intense. And Paul is writing to them in the midst of this. And so we need to remember these things. Let's close in prayer. Father, it is so comforting to know that you are in control, that you are the one who ordains, Father, that you are the one who raises kings up, presidents, nations, and are working your plan out, Lord, in the plans of men. And Father, we do cry out to you for our nation, Lord, there are so many areas that our heart is broken and weeps for the injustices and the corruption and the degradation, Father, of this country. And we know that you care, Lord. You care for the people that are being affected by all these decisions. And, Lord, it is vast. 
but God, you are great. And we know that you are able to change hearts. And Father, we pray that that would begin with us, that you would continue a change within us, that we would be able to prioritize the things in our lives, that we would live in such a way that would honor you, that we would show respect, Father, and most importantly, we'd show love, Lord, that we would care as you care, and that we would clothe ourselves with you, and that people would see you in how we speak, how we conduct ourselves. Jesus, you said you didn't come to judge this world, that the world was judged already. You came to save. Lord, may they say the same thing of us, that we are not here bringing condemnation or judgment, but we are here bringing life. We are bringing the truth. We are bringing love. And Lord, we trust your spirit will open doors for conversations that will provoke towards holiness, towards righteousness, and that you will use us in the lives of those around us. But God, may our foundation be love. May it be love for, first of all, you and your truth, and then for others. And God, I pray that you would equip us to do these things, Lord, that you would receive honor and glory. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray.